Our reading this morning is from the book of Daniel, chapter 4, beginning at verse 24. This is the interpretation, your, ma- your Majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be, but then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the palace, of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, What had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. And I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honour and splendour were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisers and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is the word of the Lord. Clive, thank you. And it's wonderful to see these really exciting stories. Nebuchadnezzar is a Babylonian. He's not a Jew. He's uh, the king of 
Babylon, who have defeated the Israelites. He is not someone the Israelite or the Jewish nation would have liked and certainly not someone that they would have expected God to be touching in this way. And the question we face this morning, just as every single person faces, is who is Lord of our heart? Who's on the throne of our heart? Now, what drives us? Where do we want to go from here? That's one of those uh, typical, actually, aren't they? Typical interview questions. Uh, you've really only just sat down, you've given a bit of explanation about where you've come from, and then the interviewer always says, so tell me, where do you want to be in five years' time? And some of them say, of course, oh, well, I want your job. Yeah, I know, that's always good to be bold, why not? The next person may say, I really want to work for this firm and be as good as I can. Yeah, <laughs> I believe you. Others have actually said to me, I'm not really sure. That's not a good answer. The worst answer I ever had when I said, why have you applied for this firm? said, I don't know, my mummy told me to. (laughs) And that was probably a 40-year-old saying it. Yes, there were two of us interviewing him uh, and that was about six minutes in we managed to last about 25 before we thought, no, we'll we'll consider your application thoroughly, but I think that we've learned all we need to know. Thank you very much. What a disaster. What drives you? What is your defining characteristic? As you will have noticed, I had a wedding here on Friday, and I always ask wedding couples how people describe them, just to get a bit of a flavour of who they are, uh, both individually and as a couple. You see, we live and we work in relationship. There used to be a phrase, didn't there, actually, um, who wears the trousers? You're nodding. It was a horrible phrase. Because it was coined in the day when the man always wore the trousers and the lady wore a dress. Because the man always had control and the lady just had to obey. Going back to weddings. Thank goodness we don't say that anymore. Please don't say that anymore. It's such a pejorative term. And I, it just means that things are out of kilter if the woman starts wearing the trousers. How rude. Isn't it? I see the women are laughing. The men are looking very dull. (laughs) I get a similar sense in this passage. Things are out of kilter. The question that's being asked on us is who sits on the throne of our heart? Now, the book of Daniel is best known for two incidents, isn't it? One is the fiery furnace where the three friends of Daniel Uh, get thrown in, and the other, of course, is the lion's den. Now, Daniel is writing at a time when Jerusalem has fallen, uh, Babylon has, or the Babylonian people, have ransacked the nation, and in those days they used to take them back uh, as slaves or just to live among them. 
The temple, which was the seat of worship for the Jewish nation, is ransacked and ruined. They are rootless. The very symbol, the iconic image of everything about that nation, the fact that God was in control, is obliterated. And there they are, in uh, exile. And it was clear to everyone, Jew and non-Jew alike, that actually their God had let them down. God was no longer in control. Their God could be defeated. Their God was no better than any other God. Or is that right? Had God let the people down? Or had the people let God down? Now, as is common with many biblical stories, this is used as an illustration, as a principle uh, that we should learn. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is king and he considers himself above everybody, everywhere. He's just defeated the Jewish nation, to be fair. So, I mean, fair dues. He was a powerful man. And he had absolute authority to make laws, to start confrontations, to raise people up and to kill others. He has, at this point, just erected a gold statue uh, which he wants everyone in the nation to bow down to because it is made by his hand to his specification. But he is confronted and challenged by four of the Jewish people that they have captured by the names of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah as you would know them probably better, as Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Firstly, they refuse to eat the king's diet. They only want vegetarian food. Daniel then gets a reputation for interpreting dreams. He installs his friends as helpers in the Babylonian household, uh, or the royal household, much to the consternation, I have to say, of the local nationals, who from that point try to kill them and continually put them in difficult positions. So difficult that the three friends get thrown into the fiery furnace, and yet there was a fourth person walking with them, who we name God. And then Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den, and the mouths of the lion are stopped by God. Daniel walks free, unharmed, and the others are then thrown in and get retribution. The king has a dream. And then we reach the passage that Clive read to us. Daniel interprets his dream and is actually quite sad to report, I'm afraid things are not looking good for you. There is only one true God. And Nebuchadnezzar, you've put yourself on the throne. And God, you have put below. You've got it the wrong way around. That's broadly what he's saying. You've got it the wrong way around. And Daniel only had one God and complete commitment to that God. Others of the Jewish nation were probably mourning uh, the loss of their freedom. But as we've already seen, Daniel stands up and is prepared to be counted 
not only to re- by refusing to eat this diet, he challenges all their soothsayers and the astrologers and the wise people of the, of the time. In fact, so much so that he even then supports them and goes to the king saying, I can interpret the dream, don't kill all of the, your uh, wise people. But I will not stop praying. I will not bow down to your God. I will not bow down to the idol. There are points in his life when Daniel knows to do something will be in direct conflict with his belief in God. In the Ten Commandments, which, as we know, are listed in Exodus and Deuteronomy, we're told that we should not bow down to an idol we've made for ourselves. Why? Because we have made it ourselves. Because we are saying that anything that we have made can be put alongside and sometimes even above God. So humans are making a God that they consider as worthy, as powerful, as praiseworthy as the creator of the universe. Now we're created to have relationship. That's where we started. Hence talking about weddings. It's about relationship. How can you have a relationship with an idol? Because to worship something means to bring them worth. How can you bring worth to something which is a statue? I like it. I'm not going to worship it. But I can worship God who wants to have impact and relationship with me in my life. And many of us find it useful not to pray to the lectern, but to pray to an icon or an image of God. That's brilliant. I like that too. I think icons are really useful. But I'm not, I'm not worshipping the person that painted it. I'm worshipping God. The person about whom that object is pointing. Who is sitting on the throne of our worship? And we can run this into all sorts of different parts of our life, can't we? There will be our friends, perhaps, who we idolise, who we use as role models. Perhaps a a sports person, maybe our mother, or perhaps our father today. I should have said at the beginning, it's Father's Day. Did you notice? Any father here noticed that it was Father's Day today? One. Excellent. Two. We're getting better. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Maybe it's a pop idol. Maybe it's a footballer. Who knows? Footballers certainly think themselves idols. Daniel trusted God because he knew that even in the face of adversity, God would be there. How many footballers are going to be on your bedside when you're feeling ill? How many icons are going to come down from the wall and sit by your bed? Your mother and your father may. But even those can let you down. Will God let you down? Daniel puts his whole trust in God. There are other times when Daniel actually gives way to the king. Bear in mind, this is the king who has ransacked his nation, destroyed the temple, taken everyone captive. And Daniel says, I'm really sorry to give you this message. 
I'm really sorry because I like you. God is using you. You are worshipping the real God, but you've gone off track. It's a hard message, isn't it? It is a really hard message to say to your friend. How many of us have actually met with a friend and said, you know, I'm really worried about you. I think you're losing your way slightly. Ooh, ouch. That's a difficult message. It's one that I've been told. And the really sad thing was that they were right. I had gone off track. I had done things wrong. I had left God behind. I had taken God off the throne of my heart. When we receive a word in season, this is what we were talking about last week, isn't it? And we ignore that word or we reinterpret that word to suit our own circumstances. That's the itchy ears that we read about last week. We listen to the words that we want to hear and not the words that we need to hear. And sometimes we need to hear who is on the throne of your heart. Who is guiding your life. And in this passage we see Daniel who is dedicated and determined to follow the path of God. To have God sit on the throne. I'm sure you know John Stott. He used to use uh, a phrase called double listening. He said because there are two voices in your ears. One is God And the other is society or the world. And we need to pray for the power of the Spirit to hear God's word, see the context of the world and to merge them so that we walk God's path in the way that is best for God and for the world. So we don't ignore the world, we engage with the world but we follow the path of God. And there are examples aplenty throughout the church of where leaders of the church, and I would have to put my hands up, where leaders of the church have not followed God. But their own self-importance and self-worth has become so important to them and their congregation that they have gone off in a different direction altogether. There is a danger in any leadership I remember a boss I had at work who, before he was retired, was spent two years absolutely flogging us to death because he was so uh, wrapped up in his own legacy for the firm. He destroyed any love and well-being that those people felt for him. It was so sad for someone who is so good to become so self-important that they ruined the very people that were putting them in that pedestal position in the first place. And we can do that with God. We can take over and usurp the position of God by putting ourselves at a higher level. So what is the key? What was the key for Daniel? And we heard about it in the passage because it was one of prayer. Prayer kept Daniel focused kept him rooted, kept him tied in relationship because in prayer we are in conversation with our God. 
And when we're in relationship with God and the closer we are with God, the more likely we are to stand firm when the, when the going gets tough. More often than not, our attitude of prayer is to kneel. The first thing you do uh, at a wedding, you proclaim the man and wife, you get them to kneel before God, to pray God's blessing upon them. Because they need the centrality of God in their marriage in order to walk. And prayer starts by kneeling in humility. So when we pray, even in our heads, let's humble ourselves. What is it? 2 Chronicles 7.14, isn't it? If my people will humble themselves, turn turn their face, humble themselves and pray, then will I heal their land. And that is what Nebuchadnezzar needed to know here. I need to set aside my statue, I need to set aside my own importance and humble myself before God. As I said, I have had that experience when I tried walking in my own strength, listening to my own voice. All the things that I had learned throughout my Christian upbringing that I'd learned off Pat, frankly, were worthless. Because I hadn't learned the humility of coming to God. It's great having an off-pat answer, but an off-pat answer needs the right question. If you haven't got the right question and your life is a bit messy, you're lost. What you need is relationship. A relationship with a living God. And an honesty. Tough times need honesty and vulnerability. An honesty to admit and a vulnerability to accept. Then you can change. Because it is God who sits on the throne of our heart. And when God is in the right place, our life can be in the right place too. Shall we pray just as we sit? Lord God, we invite you. We apologise for taking over, taking control where we shouldn't. And we ask that you would come once again to be the centre of our life, the centre of our being, our Lord, our Saviour, our Redeemer and our Guide. Be with us and lead us now and always, we ask. In your name. Amen.